This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We may never do a more timely nor a more important show on The Think Tank, and we've been at this for nine years now. Uh, War in Ukraine, my my title of this is Negotiating uh, Ukraine, Is There a Way Out?, And I have two of the best guests you could imagine um, for this. Daniel Rothenberg is uh, director at ASU of the Center for the Future of War and a foreign policy expert. And, uh, well, I uh, I guess I commented before, uh, well, my God, this is certainly the future of war or or what appears to be. But more than that, we have Marty Latz here. He's founder and CEO of the Negotiation Institute, and I envision a very synergistic discussion because Marty's expertise is essentially how do you negotiate, and if we're we're not going to have continuous war at some point, there's going to be a negotiation of some part, and we're going to talk about that. To give us a start, Daniel... Why don't we? Could you bring us up to date on exactly what we see in the current status in Ukraine? I mean, my read of morning news is there appears to be a Russian retreat out of everything except the eastern border. That could be retrenchment. That could be well. What do you think it is? And tell us where we are. Well, I think that maybe the biggest takeaway is that where we are now is not what most of the world expected when this war first began. Uh, Russia is a a large country with a large military, nowhere near as large as it was during the Cold War. But I think many people expected far more military success by the Russian forces, and that's exactly not what's occurred. And um, what we see and hear about is this move back to eastern Ukraine, to areas where um, Russian forces control more territory and and areas that that fit into a different strategic vision of, of where all this may end up. They seem to be headed towards focusing their troops in the east. What I wonder about that, that was the area at the beginning of this conflict or prior to this conflict seemed to be very Russian-leaning. I wonder, I, I seriously wonder, after the Russians have come in and destroyed some of those cities, I wonder if the Russians are as popular in that area today, even amongst the Russian-speaking population, as they were a month ago. <clears throat> Right. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I mean, the, the justification from Putin is that there really is no Ukrainian people and there's no right to self-determination by Ukrainian people so that there's real no legitimacy to the Ukrainian state. Um, and then the other justification is that their Russian forces are protecting uh, Russians and, and, and others from you know, the ravages of these nationalist Nazis. It's a rather extraordinary set of claims, given the reality on the ground. Um, obviously, you know, one thing that the Putin regime has done is shut down independent media and, and even created sort of new laws that, that make it uh, a, a crime punishable by as much as 15 years in prison to, to even call this what's going on a war. It's a really extraordinary set of repressive operations, or, or maybe not extraordinary, depending how you, you look at the regime. Um, but your point uh, about the war is a good one, which is in many ways the war began in 2014. Russia annexed Crimea and engaged in a series of military operations in a different fashion, sort of claiming it wasn't its own military, but in the eastern parts of the country in which there's a lot of uh, Russian speakers. 
Well, uh, you know, my reaction to that, oh, there isn't really a Ukraine. You know what? Even to the extent that that was true a month ago, I don't think (laughs) there's nothing that brings together a people like being attacked by an outside force. If there wasn't a, a Ukraine mentality, there sure as heck is now. And the same could be said for, you know, unified Western European and NATO ally responses. You know, this has been this has breathed life into a unified uh, movement, not not only to protect Ukraine, but to see the validity and if not necessity of of this alliance. That was certainly not the case just quite recently. Yeah, absolutely. That it, it, it seemed like there might be some fraying at the edges at a minimum in NATO that seems to be. Uh, completely reversed the the uh, uh, we have been pushing the Germans, for example, to up their defense budget, uh, and they've been very resistant to it. And at the beginning of this conflict, they said we're going the full two percent, which is what uh, America had been, or various presidents have been pushing. And they just overnight said, "Yep, that's what we're uh, we're." It's a different. Well, it's a different world. So I want to move to to Marty. Uh, uh, I thought you would have some just fascinating perspectives on that. Now, the the scheme uh, sort of underlying your uh, whole uh, philosophy in negotiating, uh, there's really a brilliant distinction. I want to retreat from the Ukraine discussion for a moment just to give you an opportunity to explain the difference between positions and interests because I think that will set the stage for a discussion of bargaining and what's possible. I think that's right, Mike. And when you really take a look at, from a negotiation perspective, what is driving this conflict, it is the interests of Russia, but perhaps more importantly, the interests of Vladimir Putin. And you and Daniel have already addressed, to a certain extent, those interests, because the difference between a position and an interest, a position is what you want. And usually it's relatively easy to understand, to find out what someone wants in a negotiation. It's oftentimes far more difficult and challenging to find out why they want it. The why, the answer to the why question is their interest. So what Putin wants is he wants Ukraine, but he wants an even broader goal than that. Because what's driving him, I think, and what's driving Russia is this worldview that they were – the breakup of the Soviet Union was the biggest disaster in world history. And it's about sort of regaining that type of power and influence. And with it comes, obviously – the control of Ukraine and the control of some of the other former Soviet Union uh, uh, places like the Baltics, uh, Poland, you know, their whole sphere of influence. If you take a look at why Putin is doing this, and this goes way back uh, to when he first came into power, he really believes, I think, that he is there to sort of regenerate a new world power from the Russian perspective. Do, do you happen to either of you guys know the story of where Putin was when the Berlin Wall fell? No? I, it, I, I don't. You don't? He is in some outpost in East Germany. Uh, he's an, a KGB officer, and the place is uh, f- surrounded by an angry crowd. And Putin goes out 
personally out in front of the building. He's a, he's a major or something like that in the KGB. And he confronts the crowd, and, you know, and he sort of gets the bravado, gets, him, gets them to disperse. But I've heard pieces that describe that as the most formative influence on his thinking. He experienced at a very personal level the humiliation of himself, of the Soviet Union, the Russian people, and that it's very consistent with, with what Marty, what you just said about what his, his, uh, what drives him, really, is that that is just a, was a seminal instant that kind of encapsulates everything that you said about uh, what, is, what is going on in his mind and in the mind of many Russians. Uh, and it's and it's about a return to a, a, a return to the grandeur of of the Soviet Union. What about and and, and we we think right. about that uh, we think about that oftentimes as the hidden agenda in a negotiation. What's really going on? What's the driver, the motivator? And oftentimes it may be psychological or emotional. In context, uh, yep. another thing I think I would add that's really important, especially for any potential upcoming negotiations, is there's a significant ego interest involved from Putin's perspective, and it's been such a crucial component, and will be such a crucial component because there may very well need to be some face-saving element in the negotiations, which is really tough because at this point. He's not really winning the war. Well, and and we'll return on that. And I also want to bring the discussion, okay, there's other players. There's the Ukrainians, there's Western European, there's the U.S. But just an interesting the personal thought on that whole business about the psychological side of it in, in terms of positions and interest. I think of the guy that goes out and buys a car, and the position is, I want to buy this car for X dollars. But the the underlying re- interest really is... I don't want to feel like a sucker, you know, and and uh, and and I think you think that, and, and I think that's just a very good way of getting people to understand the difference between the two. We'll return with uh, Daniel Rothenberg and uh, Marty Latz in just a moment in the think tank. The think tank, KTAR News on ninety two three FM and KTAR.com. Topic of the hour is Ukraine. Hard to get more timely or more important than that. Our subtext is Ukraine. Is there a way out? Negotiation expert uh, Marty Latz and foreign policy expert and uh, head of the Center for the Future of War at ASU, Daniel Rothenberg. Uh, We were talking about uh, you'd laid the framework of kind of interest and uh, and uh, un- and positions and interests that are really important. Um, I'll go to you, Daniel. What do you think? What do you think are the interests right now? The underlying interest of Putin and separately of Russia, if those diverge. I guess that's a pretty interesting question because we it's an autocratic regime, and Putin has managed to coalesce an enormous amount of power around himself and those who are closely associated. Um, so it's. Difficult in some ways, certainly with the invasion of Ukraine, to distinguish between Russia's interests, whatever Russia might be, and, and Putin's. Uh, it's hard to imagine that this conflict, if the truth were known about its facts on the ground, would be wide, wildly popular or even mildly popular among the Russian public. Um, sanctions, of course, are having their impact and their enormous casualties. I mean, it's quite striking. 
you know, think in the post 9-11 wars that went on for 20 years, you know, um, the U.S., Russia has lost significantly more soldiers, even though the numbers aren't accurately known, than the U.S. lost in 20 years of war. But if you get people angry, they seem to forget that. Uh, and that seems to be a precursor to any of the wars is you work up your own population. And and, and to be fair, that includes us. I mean, I, I mean, I remember the precipitating event in Vietnam was uh, – uh, an attack on a, a U.S. ship that we now know most historians agree was fake, but nevertheless, uh, it, was called, it became – if you want to look it up, it's Gulf of Tonkin incident. And we believed that we were attacked on the high seas by North Vietnamese. And as a result of that, Lyndon Johnson got a resolution for Congress that was used as a pretext for years to continue the war. He said it was authorization. Wow, how much easier that is in Russia when you control all the media. Sure. No, I think that uh, that it's complex also to figure out the relationship between um, you know, popular support for wars and what, whether that keeps wars going. This is such a recent conflict in those terms, uh, right? And, and really part of what's striking is, is just how devastating the conflict's been for the Russian forces. And, of course, for Ukrainians, I mean, even before this war had started, Ukrainian losses since 2014 were estimated around you know, 14,000 or so. So it's, a, it's been a live war for Ukrainians for quite some time. And then this current stage is really just devastating. And, and anybody looking at these images and paying attention to what's going on, I mean, you have one of every four Ukrainians have fled their homes internally displaced or refugees. Let me suggest one thing and have you guys react to it. In the case of Vladimir Putin, I think going in, it wasn't a thing. But I think right now, he has a fundamental interest that says stay in power. In that if he has to leave with humiliation, his position is at risk. I think that's right, Mike. Uh, But keep in mind, this is perhaps the first, and maybe Daniel can comment on this as well, the first war where we've got a really powerful autocratic regime that is almost 100 percent controlling the information that his population is receiving about the war. And that goes to his interest in staying in power, but it also goes to his interest ultimately in taking control of whatever he has to wants to take control of in terms of Ukraine. Now, there are seepages of uh, information. And information, by the way, is crucial to any negotiation. And you can see, in effect, this is a negotiation between Putin and the Russian population. And he's trying to control to the extent that he can, even in this internet media social media age, he's really trying to control the information that they're receiving. But how effective that is? Well, you know, we're going to see. My sense is that the nature of the information is if in Russia right now, if somebody's motivated, they can get outside information. But if they merely react passively, they're going to get they're going to get the sole state version because they've shut down. Well, yes, but the more body bags that come back and the more people at the at the fundamental level learn about that you know look it took how many years for them to get forced out of afghanistan 14 mm-hmm. 15 years well mm-hmm. in the social media age there may be increased pressure which goes back to putin's personal self interest of staying in power but also selling this you know as he has as a fight against nazis uh, in ukraine 
to get to that point, you, Russia has already lost in this war, which has gone on a very short time, more soldiers than it lost in 10 years of war in Afghanistan. And the other thing I think they lost is in the perception war. Bef- on day one, day zero, we assumed that this Russian army is the second mightiest in the world. Ukraine is a pipsqueak country. He's going to roll those tanks into uh, Kiev in two days. That was their expectation. I think it was most people's expectation. And that has been proven 100% wrong. Well, not only has it been proven wrong, Mike, but one of the fundamental elements in any negotiation relates to the actual people at the table, their leadership ability, their ability to articulate. And we have seen the Ukrainian people rally behind President uh, Zelensky. Well, right? and they expected – the thing about that, I think they also expected he'd get on a plane and run. <laughs> well, as others and have in the past. As, as there's a long list of them, including Afghanistan and, and, and others. You, you get off, you pack the plane full of money, uh, you go to Caribbean Island somewhere, and you have a good life. And uh, this guy was made of sterner stuff. Had that happened, we would be in a very different situation now with regards to the war and with regards to any potential future negotiation. I think it could have changed the result because a lot of it is about the resolve of the people there, and he certainly stiffened that. And we're out of time for this segment. We'll be back discussing negotiations and the future of of Ukraine in the think tank after the break. Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we're back with uh, Marty Lutz of Negotiation Institute, Daniel Rothenberg, foreign policy expert, uh, head of the Center for the Future of War, and talking about the most timely topic and important there is, which is the war in Ukraine. And um, the logic of having these guys here on the on the same platform is that Marty, our negotiation expert, I think has said a, has a sort of brilliant framework for discussing uh, what's going on. And and my idea was he would set that, and Daniel would sort of fill in. All right, how does that fit what's actually happening? And uh, we talked about positions and interest, and you're saying there's another element in, in, that's in the scheme of doing negotiations. Tell us about that. Well, it's absolutely crucial, especially when you're dealing with power negotiators like Putin, to really fundamentally understand the leverage equation in the conflict. And by leverage, I mean how much do you need a deal, how much do they need a deal, and what's your alternative Uh, What's their alternative? I like to think about the alternative as your plan B. Plan A is any negotiated solution. Plan B is what you're going to do if you don't do a deal with them. But it's not just what you're going to do. It's what they're going to do. And that's really the crucial part when you're talking about Vladimir Putin in Russia because I think he very – significantly at the beginning of the conflict, misperceived his leverage. And actually, the West and the United States didn't do a lot to try to create leverage and prevent him from invading in the first place. Because he took a look at the West at the time. He took a look at our chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. He took a look at the Uh, inflation issue. He took a look at Biden's low approval rating. He took a look at the somewhat disjointed nature of uh, Germany's uh, positions relating to sanctions before he invaded. And he figured he's going to invade. He doesn't have 
a pretty bad plan B because he figured, hey, Ukraine's going to roll over and basically just let us come in and take over. Obviously, he mischaracterized the opposition. He misinterpreted the strength of uh, Western Europe, the United States. He didn't, I think, ever believe that we would institute really significant, powerful, broad economic sanctions, not only on Putin and his oligarch friends personally, but also on the entire economy of Russia. And now he's seeing that his plan B is pretty darn bad. And that's having an impact, I think, on obviously their retreat. But it also means that from the West's perspective, if you want to negotiate with someone like Putin who understands leverage very well, you've got to keep your foot on the gas pedal and you really have to continue to provide that lethal military aid. You've got to continue to institute even harsher sanctions and you've got to continue to create leverage and make Putin's plan B – uh, much worse than any possible negotiated solution, which would be a plan A at the negotiation table. Yeah, I'm going to go to Daniel a second, but my observation would be that's exactly what we're doing. That is exactly. That, that is the, the, the sanctions are being ramped the, up. The military aid is. I think it's coming more the, than they're even saying. I think what's going on with uh, with their uh, president of Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky. I think there's theater. He's saying, oh, God, help us, help us. Behind the scenes, that allows us to ship. I heard one estimate in the beginning. They had one missile, tank missile for every tank there. Now now I'm hearing 10. Well, Mike, you know, Uh, the unfortunate part is, yes, they're doing it right now. Yes, they've done it mm -hmm. right ever since the invasion. I wish that they had done some of this stuff before. Because by not doing it before, and all we're doing is pushing rhetoric at Russia and saying they're going to invade, they're going to invade. But had we conditioned economic sanctions on an invasion, had we really provided a lot more lethal military aid to Ukraine before the invasion, that could have had an impact on Putin at the time. We didn't do it. We see the result. And by the way, Putin, I think, was, again, dealing with lack of accurate information because he's living in a bubble as an autocrat, and he's got a bunch of yes-men around and him. And generals tell him, we're going to roll in there, no problem. That's, uh, yeah. that's right. And his public perception was of a disjointed West. They're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Had we actually been able to round up all of these allies and vote for economic sanctions— and lethal military aid and made that even conditional on an invasion, Mm. I think that would have caused Putin to second guess the decision. Now, maybe he still would have misinterpreted it, but at least it would have ramped up the leverage from our perspective. Daniel, you got a lot to react to. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the real dangers of trying to make sense of where all this is going is, is trying to figure out what the timeline may, well, may be. So, uh, there's been pretty substantial military defeat in certain ways on the side on the Russian side, but but at the same time, Russia has a long history of having significant control in the eastern regions, Crimea being annexed, and and you know other regions under you know with with a series of Russian allied uh, forces. So so one question is, how comfortable is the U.S., NATO allies, other key players in the international community with a war that simmers and continues for years? 
particularly in those regions where it might be really quite difficult militarily to dislodge all of the forces on, on the Russian side. And why is that an interesting or a complex question for the issue of negotiations is to what degree is Ukraine willing to accept a negotiation that involves losing territory on the eastern part of the country? And, and I would add even to that, if the West does not fully support Ukraine in trying to roll Russia back to the pre-Ukraine war borders, what message for the world is being sent by acknowledging that this type of military action is, in effect, being accepted? Yeah, because one of the, the key elements of the international understanding post-World War II is – Nobody changes a border by force. And that is was incredible thing to do in Europe where those borders had been fluid for centuries. They they ebbed and they flowed with the tides of power and and no matter where you draw the lines, it's not gonna be right. Because there's gonna be groups that have historical alliances in ethnic alliances, blood in other directions because they're at the at the at the margins they're intermixed. But if any negotiated solution includes a new border that gives Russia more territory, more control mm. over Donbass and some of the yeah. other areas, you're in effect giving Putin a win, which mm -hmm. might make sense from an ego perspective. But in terms of precedent in Europe, incredibly dangerous. I hear that. Yeah, I hear the danger of the precedent. But the, I'm, I'm thinking the other side is you got to give Putin – something or else he has no incentive to leave. I mean, it, it, you, you can say it's very easy to say not one inch of territory. Heck, you could say give back Crimea. And what is Putin going to say? He's going to say no. Well, that's in right. Fact, and one of the Dan, the U.S. position has been since 2014, a series of sanctions far milder than the current sanctions designed to encourage Russia to pull back to the pre-2014 recognized borders of the country. And, uh, you know, to, to get to the point just made, the, the war has, the meaning of war and the legitimacy of war has shifted quite significantly in, in the post-Second World War era. And war is no longer understood to be acceptable for gaining territory or for other interests, gaining resources, as was common in the past. These are wars of aggression with many, which is invasion is a war of aggression or the crime of aggression. It's viewed as perhaps the greatest breach of international law and international affairs possible because it upsets the system. And to some degree, we're looking at the implications of what does it mean when you have a war of aggression, particularly on European territory. You know, what endpoint is the only acceptable endpoint? Are there lots of endpoints that can be viewed as legitimate? And to get to your point, if an endpoint in, in allows Russia to gain control of some significant portion of what was what is Ukrainian territory, surely that is a win in some respects for Putin and Russia. Well, let me a ask it the same question then to you, Daniel. Uh, I get that. I, I would not like the Russians to get an inch of territory for this. I would like them to lose Crimea, which which even though it has it is historically part of Russia, was an, it was taken by a completely illegitimate means. But how – if you present that to Putin, how do you get a yes out of him? It's a good negotiation question. <laughs> well, let me, let me yeah. jump in on that, Mike, because what Daniel was saying before about the sanctions might be the key 
to any possible solution because I think the troops on the ground provide leverage. And I think at the end of the day, the Russian troops are going to be in control of significant parts of what was – In the east probably. Uh, in the east yep. probably what was Ukraine. And the question on the negotiation table is if you give that up, which which – I don't think the West is going to have much choice if Russia has actual control over that territory. What price are you going to make Putin and Russia pay for the West accepting that? And the sanctions, the economic sanctions, the uh, uh, getting rid of our dependence on oil, on coal, on energy, especially in Western uh, especially in Europe, you may end up with a negotiation where there continues to be very significant penalties on Russia, in effect sending the message that you can't do this and there are penalties to be paid, even if we accept that you have some additional territorial gains. I have one last question in this segment, and I want to address it to Daniel. And I, I, I think of what Marty just said, and I said, you know, the, the potential key player in this may very well be China, which started out supportive of Russia. But the problem with trying to strangle Russia, for example, the oil is, is their big source of income. China would could buy every drop of that Russian oil. They, they're, they're hungry for energy and other resources. If China looked at this and said their interests are not anymore aligned with Russia. If China said we won't buy the oil or we will somehow participate in sanctions, it would seem to me that would take it over the top. Do you see it that way, Daniel? And A, do you agree that that would happen if they did it? And B, do you think there's any likelihood that they would come in on the side of the West? Yeah, I mean, those are a lot of speculative questions. I think it's hard to know for certain that we, we certainly have cases out there. Think of the massive sanctions placed on Iraq after the first Gulf War, where uh, as devastating as those sanctions were for ordinary Iraqis in terms of like all sorts of impact on daily life, they did not lead to any lo- loss of power uh, for Saddam Hussein or, or, or his insiders. Um, and in many ways, they didn't produce the policy outcomes that were desired. Um, and we, we just don't know how much suffering and pressure could be put on Russia and Russians to get a desired policy outcome. Uh, and then the question becomes, is, you know, is it productive to engage in that kind of, you know, those kind of actions? Obviously, China is a key player in all of this. Um, no doubt they will pursue what they see as key to Chinese interests and probably not particularly allied to Russia for what Russia wants. Uh, but there's so many moving parts. And the one thing we should know, certainly reflecting on, you know, our own experience with armed conflict for 20 years in the post post um, 9/11 era, that whatever you expect will happen right now, it's quite likely that those expectations and those plans um, will turn out quite differently. Um, so we're, we're, it's a very dangerous and difficult situation, even though we see this moment or retraction of Russian forces, which looks sort of positive for certain policy goals. This can go all sorts of directions, and um, it's it's really a, a very troubling, dangerous circumstance, and. Um, probably not so great to make predictions, but but appropriate to think through all the possible ways this can play out. Well, once again, we are left with the wisdom of the great philosopher Yogi Bear, who said it's difficult to predict, especially the future. We will talk, however. We'll make our best shot when we return for a final segment in the Think Bank in just a moment. 
The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back in the Think Tank. This is a wrap session on Ukraine and what we do. There's one additional element that we haven't discussed yet about this uh, um, uh, conflict, and that is that uh, there have been in recent days uh, overwhelming and gruesome evidence of what I think anyone would agree uh, are war crimes. And the question is how that, uh, Daniel, fits into any negotiation or outcome that we're looking at at this point. It's a, it's a major issue. Certainly, it's, it's on a lot of folks' minds. I mean, we've seen in you know, the key suburbs of Bucharest these just horrifying images of not only civilians who were killed in the conflict, but purposely targeted, subjected to torture and all sorts of, of other terrible acts. And, you know... This should, I think, play a role in what it, what negotiate, how negotiations advance. And yet at the same time, certain claims, certainly claims of war crimes and claims of demands of accountability might be barriers for people to want to sit at the table and negotiate, you know, um, some outcome to the, to the end of hostilities. Daniel, I think that's exactly right. Uh, keep in mind that when we're talking about the impact of these just horrific images that we are seeing, of course, the people in Russia are not seeing it. The people in Russia don't believe, I think, it's happening, at least to the extent to which the information is being controlled by Putin. But the impact on the rest of the world, I think, is having a major impact on what's going to happen at the table because there is perhaps nothing more unifying to the world other than perhaps with China, which is important, than seeing these images. And in the social media age, it is absolutely outrageous that it is happening and you see a level of response from our side of the negotiation table that I think is driving the leverage from our perspective in terms of in terms of additional sanctions, in terms of additional lethal military aid, in terms of additional support for uh, Ukraine that could have a very unifying and relevant impact at the table from our perspectives. It may end up being an additional issue that actually will need to be addressed at the table before there's any type of resolution. You know, uh, I, and I, I, I think you restricted that to the to the uh, reaction in the West, because, uh, you know, I think back to, uh, you know, the, the perpetrating side uh, and, and we've been in this category. I mean, again, I could go back to uh, Vietnam and things like my life, which half our own people didn't. Uh, didn't uh, acknowledge and and a whole lot of them would say, oh well, you know those were communist babies or something. When you and 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 this is in the context of a free press, in a controlled press. In I, I, what I don't expect is the Russian people to get outraged by this because, in, in a controlled environment, when you get nationalism involved on on both sides, the the perpetrator never takes an honest look at their own behavior. You had a you had another point that you wanted to raise on a. Well, I think that uh, from a leverage perspective, we need to continue to push. We need to continue to unify. And we need to really focus on the interests, not so much of the Russian people and maybe even not so much on the 
interests of Putin but on the interests of those in Russia that are feeding uh, Putin, meaning the military uh, around Putin because they actually have the power. We There's a lot of press about the oligarchs, about the economy, but who actually has an impact on Putin's decision-making, on whether or not Putin is – uh, continues to be in office, and you have to have an impact there because until that group of individuals feel some of the pain of what we're trying to do to them, Putin is going to feel like he's secure. And and I think you make an important point that that was re- resonated. By, I saw an interview over the weekend with the there was a fellow name escapes me, but he was the mo- he was the richest man in Russia, clearly an oligarch. Fell out of power with Putin, ended up in jail for 10 years. And he said, you know, these oligarchs are not independent power people. They are creatures of Putin. So don't think of them as somebody who's going to force them out, him out because because he controls them. It's other sources and the, the military comes to mind. Well, in the West perceives that it's the people with money and economic power that have an impact on the decision makers because oftentimes that's a Western-centric view. Based on what I've read, that's not really where the power lies in Russia and that's crucial. Hey, Daniel, uh, how do we – what's your take? How do, how do we – how does it get – what does a solution look like? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we know what what the solution or a solution and possible solutions are. But one thing I, w- I think we should keep in mind, you know, we've used the term "we" a lot in reference to any number of different "we's." But in the end of the day, it's Ukraine that's been invaded, and Ukrainians who are the suffering population here. And it seems correct, morally, legally, and, and otherwise, that. Ukrainian interests and needs should be foremost in what determines what are appropriate bounds of negotiation. And interestingly, President Zelensky, at the same time as making the claim that Russia was committing genocide against Ukrainian people, also opened up the possibility of being willing to engage in negotiations without laying out any specificity as to what that means. Yeah, I mean, they're both, I think there's some, some indic. Now, let me ask you one thing about, uh, and this is to you, Daniel. I, I've held the suspicion that I'm noticing some things around the I, – well, I've said I think it's theater. Zelensky is saying, oh, we need more help. That, I think, gives cover for the help that's coming in. I noticed that we, uh, for example, uh, agreed that we would give uh, several hundred troops, several hundred tanks to Poland. That suggests to me that Poland is slipping some tanks into uh, Ukraine with which they share a voter, probably old Soviet tanks, but but that what we're really doing is replenishing uh, uh, Poland for what they're already doing, but can't say that they're doing for fear of of, of getting basically bombed by Russia. We've got about 30 seconds. What do you, uh, you think there's something to that? I think there's all sorts of assistance we're not hearing about, and just to think for all of us for a minute, just imagine how much intelligence assistance is being provided to Ukrainians and how much that means. Mm-hmm. Well, you get the final word. Uh, it's been a terrific discussion. As always, we could have used another hour. But uh, if we took that by then, I think things would have changed. And the, the other that's the, the other gem I take out of this is these things are changing fast. And what we say now, well, come back and, and it'll probably surprise all of us. Thank you, Marty Latz, Daniel Rothenberg. We will see you next week in the Think Tank.